Hello, everyone, and welcome to Speaking with Joy, a podcast to fill your soul, challenge your mind, and make you brave. I'm your host, Joy Clarkson, and an evangelist for all things good, true, and beautiful. So make yourself a cup of tea, find somewhere comfortable, and let's dive in to this week's episode. Until recently, I didn't think that humans could choose loneliness, that there were sometimes forces more powerful than the wish to avoid loneliness. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Reading with Joy, my summer book club, where we are exploring Clara and the Sun by Kazuo Ishiguro, a book about what it means to be human, loneliness, technology, and many, many other things. Today, I am delighted to be joined by a friend, a scholar, and what is your official title at Regent College? I am the registrar at Regent College. The registrar at Regent College, James Smoker. Welcome on the show, James. Thank you, Joy. I'm glad to be here. Uh, James and I have one of the same supervisors at St. Andrews. So that is how we uh, first, well, I don't know if that's how we first met, but that's um, the origin, St. Andrews is the origin of our, of our friendship. And uh, James is now doing interesting work over at, uh, at Vancouver at Regent College while still finishing his PhD. Um, so I've given you a little bit of an introduction, but why don't you say a bit more about yourself and what you do and what you research? Sure. Yeah. So I am from Vancouver, from Canada, and had done my master's at Regent College and from there went on to do a PhD. Um, and I had friends out in St. Andrews and someone rec- recommended one of the people out there to be a supervisor. So off to Scotland, my family and I went uh, to start the same program that Joy, that you're in, in the Institute of Theology, Imagination, the Arts over there. Um, my area, my dissertation is on the romantic English poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge and his idea of the imagination and how it leads us to know God and how that intersects with faith and doubt uh, in his poetry and in his uh, theological writing. So that's what I'm working on still for my dissertation. And uh, it's, and so we were in St. Andrews from 2019. We had about six months pre-pandemic and then lockdown came down upon us as it did for everyone else. And so we had about a year and a half um, in pandemic era Scotland. And then uh, this job came up at Regent and I came back. Uh, we decided that full-time job would be the best thing for the family and and Regent is near family and it's a place I love very much. So now we're back here and I'm doing both these things at once, working on the working on Coleridge while also uh, maintaining sort of academic programs here at Regent. Yes. And James and I have been co-conspirators. I think we are both project people. We both like kind of scheming and then making things happen. So when I first met James, I was running this kind of monastic study group called the scriptorium and uh we both wrote a lot of our phds there and you kind of helped me with some of that and then when you went back to um regent i've got to do a fun a few fun things with regent so we both quite enjoyed piranesi which has some strongly Coleridgean um themes and so mm-hmm. i got to do a talk at regent and this fall i'm also doing a class um which was at James's prompting, which will be really fun. Um, so that's called The Art of Dying and the Theology of Hope, which is a part of the, people might, some of the listeners might like to know a bit about the online program that Regent is hosting. Do you want to say anything about that? 
Yeah, so Regent is a graduate school, so we only do master's level courses. Um, and for the most part, our courses are here on campus. Uh, our programs are very like, uh, there's a strong sense of, you know, embodied face-to-face -face learning that runs through Regent College, but we have always, or since um, distance education has become a technological, technologically possible thing, we, uh, we ran that through cassettes, mailed out to people back in those days, and now, we are once again uh, refreshing it and uh, looking at new online courses we can offer, especially as everything was online and continues to be online with COVID. And so Joyce, uh, you're, I'm telling you this for the sake of your audience, because you already know this, but you are doing a course on uh, as part of that package of new electives. And so it's open to anyone, like you don't have to be in a program to take the course uh, because it's a graduate school, you have to at least have a BA or be 28 years old so that mature student level. But so long as you haven't already done 12 credits, you can take a course, uh, including Joy's. Um, you can audit it, which means you don't have to do the assignments. And once you get up to 12 credits and we say, hey, you seem to be enjoying region mm -hmm. courses, maybe you should consider a program and you'll get a letter from us inviting you to do more um, and get a credential out of it. So we're so excited to have you. Um, and it's such a good topic. Like death is part of Regent's DNA, weirdly. Um, there's it goes back to the beginning when it was founded 50 years ago that there's a the first class of students, uh, I was six students, um, and there was a car accident when they were coming up to study and two of them died. Um, and so the first group of students to study at Region 50 years ago um, uh, began with this tragedy in the student body. And that story is told at orientation every year that uh, Regent is acquainted with suffering and death. And it's a part of, um, a part of the life and awareness of the college and so yeah so I think it's a course that's important to to Regent's identity I think as a school as well this um how do we what is our posture towards death um so like I said oh. we're glad to have you Joy well I'm excited to do it and um I didn't know that about the history of Regent I don't think um I'm particularly excited for the opportunity because I'm getting to kind of use a lot of what I wrote my PhD about because my PhD was about, you know, if art can prepare us for death and what are the kind of spiritually formative capacities of art and how do we think about that theologically? And so it's been really energizing actually to read back through mm -hmm. a lot of what I wrote in my PhD in a slightly less, you know, panicked mode than I was reading yeah. last year as I was submitting my PhD and preparing for Viva. So I'm really, I'm really excited about it. And there's also lots of other interesting courses like um, is Malcolm teaching one? Am I making that up? Yeah, Malcolm Geit is doing a course on the Inklings that will also be online only. He'll be teaching that from England. Um, so he that's just a one-week course in November. Um, mm -hmm. Lewis and Tolkien and Barfield and Williams. Yeah. Um, so it'll be great. Malcolm Geit is a regular. I could just plug the entire school right now. But the um, so our other uh, new online course, our distance course, is on biblical Christology with Joshua Coots, who's a New Testament professor out in Manitoba. So it's the development of how the early church uh, expressed the belief that Christ was God, uh, the Son of God. And so he's going through New Testament texts and some early church texts and how that came about and what that has to do with worship and liturgy and um, and how that then became the doctrines of the church in a way. So that will be fantastic. Um, so we have a 
course from another visiting professor, Elizabeth Sung, who teaches on doctrinal theology and race and personhood. And so she's actually doing one on sanctification, spiritual formation and personal transformation. So it's sort of the theology of sanctification and it'll have this spiritual practice incorporated into it. I think that'll be really great. Um, where, yeah, so it'll, because that's another thing that's part of what region has aimed to do since the beginning is bring in what do Christians practice or what we call spiritual theology, prayer, conversion, transformation, spiritual direction. And then what's the theology behind that? So the history of it, reading texts like Julian of Norwich, uh, which your listeners will know, and um, Thomas Akempis, um, some of those classics, Pilgrim's Progress, but then also um, what's actually going on there theologically um, in, in an academic way? How can we describe it? So I think that'll be a great one. But I guess we should actually, at some point, talk about Clara and Son. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when I read Claire, I read Claire and the Sun last summer because um, Plow asked me if I'd read it and see if I wanted to review it. And you were one of the first people I actually talked to about it because you had also read it. Um, mm -hmm. And um, yeah, what were some of your kind of initial impressions of the book? Yeah, so I had read... Um, this is one of the things that I think informs our friendship is we tend to read some of the same books. On accident. We don't like yeah. say, hey, James, you should read Claire and the Sun. We just happened to. Yeah, we just sort of realize we're reading them at the same time. And so I would read uh, Ishiguro's, uh, a couple of his other books, um, Remains of the Day, Never Let Me Go, and The Buried Giant. And Never Let Me Go was one of my favorite books. It was um it's a devastatingly sad book to read I think have you read it yet have you I'm gotten to that in one? the process of reading it okay yeah I it, it was hard on my soul to read that book I think but um I did love it and so when Clara and the Sun came out um I, yeah I just thought I'm going to read this well we're in lockdown and I have time to read things and my first impressions I it I, I mean I really enjoyed it and it was it's a kinder book in some ways than some of Ishiguro's other books. There's, it's also melancholy, there's sadness to it, um, but there's a, a lightness and an innocence and a hopefulness to it that's, other people might say his other books are hopeful, but I think this is more obviously hopeful mm. than his other novels. Um, Clara is such a, um, a companion that I found, I just, love to spend time with her it's I've heard you say this about Perinacy where you just feel protective of the protagonist and I think mm -hmm. it's the same thing with Clara as you I felt you feel this protectiveness towards her and her innocence um and a worry we'll get into like some of the sinister hints that are happening <laughs> the further you get into the book um and Ishiguro is just so interested in these questions of what makes a self and how we are formed in relation to others and how our memory and our limitations inform who we are. Mm. Um, and that's very much on display in this book as well, but with a more hopeful angle than I think Never Let Me Go might have. <laughs> yeah, um, it's interesting. So, you know, as I usually do when I'm doing these book clubs, I've been kind of like cheat sheeting. I've been listening to interviews with um, Ishiguro about the book. And he does say yeah. that he's kind of famous for playing with genres. So he, he doesn't like genres. He likes to kind of go in and try and different things. But one of the things he said mm -hmm. is that he likes to tell the same story over and over again. Um, 
But I remember, I remember you saying when you first read this, that there's kind of always this sense that you're being set up for disappointment or Mm -hmm. this great kind of loss of faith. Um, But as you read, you keep on having, it keeps on not doing that, you know, and up to this point in the book, um, there keeps being this innocence, this hope and this beauty. And there are these kind of sinister worrying things that are happening, but, but there's this steady goodness, which is really um, presented in the character of Clara and kind of in her, in her hope and in her trust in the son's goodness. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's really, it's an oddly uplifting book, even for one which takes place in a dystopian, not so distant future. Can I tell you something Mm -hmm. really funny? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I wanted to get the audiobook of Never Let Me Go. This is like a real, um, real confession. I wanted to get the audiobook, but I went on YouTube and I thought, well, I'll listen because sometimes there will be free audiobooks on YouTube. So I listened for like two hours to this audiobook one day that had the cover for Never Let Me Go and it said Kajui Shiguru. And I was cleaning yeah. and and I was like, I'm just, uh, this is not what I was expecting at all. It was this story that takes place in America and it's about this architect who's um who's uh suddenly becomes responsible for his for his daughter because the mother who divorced him is overseas and then he hires a nanny and as i was saying this james you have to be sitting there going that is not the plot i've never let me go (laughs) not at all um and it's just this like kind of like kind of simplistic sappy love story that i was listening to and i was like i just i mean what's the big I was like, I guess like, this is like kind of pleasant, but like, what's the deal? And like, I was like, hmm, maybe I could see this, the theme of servanthood because, you know, it's mostly about this mainly. and, you know, in a lot of his other works, like never let me go or not let me like, well, I guess never let me go, uh, but also, you know, reigns the day and Claire have this kind of theme of servanthood or, you know, social roles. So then eventually I'm like, I just want to look at the comments. And so I look at the comments and then I find out that this was not in fact Somehow it had been the covers had been swapped and it was not in fact the book by Kajo Ishi grew. So I listened to two hours of this very um very kind of nondescript book about a name <laughs> and, and a father falling in love. Was it the same name though? It was called Never Let Me Go. Yeah, and I think it even had the cover from Never Let Me Go and Kajo Ishi yeah. and they had just replaced it with a different book of the same time. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's next year's book club. You can just throw that one at people and say, here's a book <laughs> randomly. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, always double check that you're listening to the right book. Um, mm-hmm. So let's dive into this week's chapter. Uh, and the way that uh, I tend to do this is by, we pick kind of some significant scenes. Now, first, let's try to kind of get a sense of what happens in this in this chapter. You mm-hmm. had a good way of dividing it. Do you want to to say your your three-act thesis? Yeah, so I think you could say there are three major scenes in part three. Um, There is an introduction and a coda, I think, as well around this. But um, the first major one is the bubble game between um, Rick and Josie. And then there's the scene at Rick's house when uh, when Clara delivers Josie's picture to Rick. Uh, and then the mother comes into that. Rick's mother comes into that. And then there's uh, what I called the barn and the bargain. So I threw in some alliterative subheadings there, which I doubt Ishiguro would appreciate. But, you know, um, where Clara makes a bargain at the barn. Um, and then there's a coda that I do think is important of Josie um, having this moment with her mother 
this sudden fear of death that Clara observes at the end. Um, but those are the three major scenes, I think, the bubble game, Rick's house, and then the barn uh, that move us through this chapter. Yes, I think that is correct. And I, um, what I see as significant in this chapter and, and why I chose the opening passage that I did is that, you know, throughout the book, Clara is learning about human nature for the sake of caring for Josie. And, um, and she's especially attuned whenever Ishiguro describes the book, he says it's narrated from the perspective of a robot who's created to keep teenagers from being lonely. Mm. Um, and so Clara is really attentive to loneliness and to trying to kind of fix loneliness. And, you know, in the last, last episode, we talked about these little things, even down to, you know, the mother's, um, what is it? She says the mother's quick coffee, you know, these, these little mm -hmm. things that keep people from feeling lonely. Um, but what strikes me in this chapter is that it's kind of a complication and a development of Claire's perspective on this, because it's about the reasons that we might choose loneliness over something else. Mm -hmm. So, you know, mm -hmm. you have this uh, temporary separation between Rick and Josie, um, this cho choice by both of them in funny ways to be lonely rather than to be in relationship. Um, and, mm -hmm you know, kind of thinking about what, what caused that, what caused the willingness to choose loneliness. But then in the mother, you have, you, Clara can clearly see that she is, she would rather choose loneliness. She'd rather choose to not have Rick with her, um, but also choose for Rick to be successful and to have a good life. And so in that, you kind of have this almost, um, you see love as a reason to choose loneliness, uh, ironically. Um, and then, uh, and I mean, it's perhaps a bit more complicated, but I think in the barn scene, you have this sense of how love might require, in Clara's mind, a sacrifice or healing might require um, a choice that might cost us something. So I think it's all kind of about cost of loneliness, the cost of love, and this new kind of more complex view that Clara is developing of human nature and of what it will take to, to love Josie well. Um, there's also some other, another kind of underlying thing that's happening, which is kind of this, as we were talking about before, uh, impending sense of dread around the portrait. Yeah. Um, do you want to say anything about that? Yeah, because you don't know, well, um, there's this fear that Rick has of, um, Capaldi, the Dr. Capaldi, I think, uh, the portrait taker that what's he doing like he's taking these photographs of Josie some of them seem to be like only of certain like parts of her body and not all of her and so why do you need an up close say of her hand they don't really say what part specifically but like why is this important to a portrait um so Rick has picked up that there's something odd going on there and the housekeeper as well Melania is uh also very suspicious of this whole process uh, but then there's also this sinister little note of the vision that Rick's mother sees of some lookalike of uh, Josie's older sister that the, uh, Josie's mother tackles in the grass and, and it just passes by. Like it's one thing um, you can talk about a little bit more later, but the way that Clara just lets certain details pass by, um, yeah. there are certain things she's very focused on investigating and understanding like the sun and Josie's sickness. And then there are all these things that happen in the chapter that people talk to her about that she just doesn't respond to in any way. Mm -hmm. And one of them is this, what's going on with Sal? Like, do you think that's the mystery 
that our plot should turn towards like is is a sal stuck in a closet somewhere i think that um, rick's mom says something like that or like or rick says it that she has this crazy theory that maybe there's some lookalike stuck somewhere in the the walls of the house or in a closet yeah and clara just doesn't care like yes. this isn't this is totally fit with her what she's doing yeah so um, another one of those things is i was i was guessing about it's interesting how invested she is in josie's sickness but it seems like rick's mom is also sick but with mm. and but we don't really get a sense of what we have a sense that it you know, he says the front hallway is a mess, but we don't know what that means or why. And Clara just kind of also doesn't seem particularly concerned about that. Um, and there's a smell that Rick smell. apologizes for, a smell yeah. from the night before. Yeah. Um, that, again, Clara just, just, she can't smell. Yeah. Yeah, which is also an interesting thing. Why can't AF smell? All right. So why don't we start with Act 1, as it were. And you you wanted to pick out a specific section um mm-hmm. in the bubble game scenario so for a refresher um while Josie's been ill Rick keeps on coming over and they play this game where she, where Josie who's a bit of an artist will draw a cartoon and then she'll do a bubble and then Rick will fill in um what it is the character is is saying yeah and the the specific context for this is after some tension has come into the game and Clara um cleans up the pictures after the after Rick has left and the game is done. So it's after there's been some tension and arguing. Uh, it's not just a fun game anymore. And so Clara uh, starts, uh, once, while perform- uh, once while performing this tidying, I happened to pick up a sheet. And though I glanced at it only fleetingly, established straight away that the two main faces in the picture were supposed to represent Missy and the long-armed girl from the interaction meeting. There were, of course, various inaccuracies. But Josie's intention was obvious. The sisters were at the front of the picture with unkind expressions, while other less finished faces crowded around them. And although there were no furniture details, I knew the setting was the open plan. Had it not been for a large bubble above it, it could or it would have been easy not to notice the small featureless creature squeezed into the gap between the sisters. In contrast to the picture Missy and the picture long-armed girl, this creature lacked the usual human features, such as face, shoulders, arms, and resembled more one of the water blobs that formed on the surface of the island near the sink. In fact, if not for the bubble above it, a passerby might not have even guessed the shape was intended to represent a person at all. The sisters were ignoring the water blob person completely, despite the person's closeness. Inside the bubble, Rick had written, the smart kids think I have no shape, but I do. I'm just keeping it hidden because who wants them to see? Although I only glimpsed this picture for a second, Josie knew I'd taken it in. And she said from the bed in a sleepy voice, don't you think that's a weird thing for him to write? When I gave a small laugh and carried on tidying, she went on, do you suppose he thinks I meant that to be him? The little guy between the two nasties? Do you suppose that's why he filled the bubble that way? It's possible. But you don't think so, do you, Clara? Then she said, Clara, you listening? Come on, can we have a comment here? It's perhaps more likely he assumed the small person was Josie. Mm. Um, and I thought, so the bubble game, um, if you go to the bigger thematic stuff around Ishiguro, does get at this, this um, 
uh, question he has around the way we can know each other and language. And it's this, it's this interesting little game that they play when they can't say anything else. It's a way that they're communicating to one another mm. um, in a way that um, they can't just by sitting there and talking. Mm. But of course, that leads to misunderstandings and deeper hurts coming out. Mm. Um, so it doesn't solve the problem of the communication gap, even though maybe it lets them say things to each other that they wouldn't be able to say if they're just speaking directly. It's a funny thing because it um, shows, demonstrates the kind of fear that Rick had in the last chapter about the sense that Josie is changing whenever she's with the teenagers and that if she keeps changing, she won't be the same person which is also gets down to the question of what makes us who we are. You know, is it just acting the same way? Can we change and still be the same person? Um, mm -hmm. Which is all the questions around soul, which become more obvious later. Um, but it's funny because you have to remember that Josie drew this picture and it sounds like she meant for the water blob to be Rick. Do you mm -hmm. think that's, do you think she meant for it to be Rick or do you think she was kind of playing a, was she, almost tricking him into telling him what he was really worried about. Yeah, it could, it could be it because is Rick turning that around on her and saying, no, this is actually you, or is he seeing something deeper in Josie and recognizing that, you know, on the surface, this is Rick, but he knows Josie's actually expressing her own fear. Um, and that it's, it is both in a way, um, and and you're right. And I really enjoyed that in the last episodes, uh, the discussion around part two, that that interplay of do you have a core self or how much of yourself is formed in relation to others, and, and that gets that's a question going to my research that Coleridge was just fascinated by. Mm -hmm. um, he was so interested in his friendships, and his friendships are so famous um, with Wordsworth, but then many others, um, and yet he interrogated his own self so deeply his dreams his wants his addiction um uh, why was he the way he why couldn't he do what he wanted to do why did he do what he didn't want to do um that quote from paul i think really informed a lot of his life and so i see it coming out in in the clara and the sun as well um this this yeah it reminds me you yeah. know one of the dynamics of friendship is being seen and understood by someone right that's a part of um what we want and in this section it's all because there's several things because there's also she draws the quite dark picture of everyone looking at her and all the, the eyeballs which is quite disturbing and rick yeah. recognizes that it's her but then she's angry at him for recognizing that it's her even though she is the one who drew the picture and it's almost mm -hmm. like this funny this funny conflict between I thought about this. Josie is in quite a difficult position because on the one hand, everyone around her loves her. But on the mm -hmm. other hand, she is ill and she feels her illness to be a burden to everyone. And she's, she's bearing quite a lot as a young girl. And it's almost like she wants Rick to see her, but then she also resents the fact that he sees her quite, mm -hmm. quite honestly. And, um, and so I think that's something I find fascinating about this section too, is that, Oddly, it seems to me like Rick really does understand her and, and he sees her clearly. And her reaction to that is offense. And that there's there's a sense that, you know, you get in the last chapter that she's kind of pretending 
Um, and that Rick doesn't like it when she pretends, but she gets irritated when he actually does see her, but she also kind of seems to be trying to make her see her. So there's this, this, like you said, why do I, why do I do what I don't want to do? There's a sense of she wants to be seen, but then she also resents him for being, for seeing her too, too clearly. Yeah. There's, I mean, it's pressing on a wound when you're seen for yourself. Um, but it's a thing that, that she wants. No, I think that's true. And I think, and this was in the last uh, discussion as well, just um, there's a bit of selfishness in how Rick wants to preserve her and the way that he sees her and that she should be allowed to change and and that he doesn't control what her identity is Mm -hmm. and yet a protectiveness that she not become one of the mean girls, Mm -hmm. um, that she preserves some kind of Josiness that that he knows. It's it's a tension that that Ishiguro, of course, just sit there in in the way that he's so good at doing mm. um and and it, oh, it's so applicable to teenagers especially I mean he gets that sort of <laughs> heightened moment I mean even take away the sickness take away the dystopian mm. setting and just the that finding who you are and trying on different roles um that trying on different personas with your friends with your mother with your mm. boyfriend I mean that's part of it too when you talk about everyone is watching her is that it's also in relation to what happened to Sal I Mm. think that there's another pressure of being the daughter to survive Mm. um, and that she's seen someone go through this what she's going through Mm. Um, and that doesn't come up like like Clara's not picking up on that Sal is so peripheral but I think Mm. if this was told from Josie's point of view or the mother's point of view Sal would be a much more present character um, Mm. in Josie's sickness yeah well and it is very much just just that that drama of individuation right of wanting to be connected and knowing that who you are is formed in your relationship to other people but then also wanting there to be some some josiness as you say in separation um Mm -hmm. so they have this kind of departure and then eventually this this movement back towards unity which i guess brings us to the scene um at rick's house so Mm -hmm. Um, you know, Josie has had her little, she's been offended, but she kind of, she actually realizes that she wants to be in a relationship with Rick. And so she sends over this little, um, new picture and, um, and Clara, who's, who seems kind of eager to get outside. And I feel like pulsing underneath Clara's own desires is always thinking she wants to go outside because she wants to go to the barn and she wants to see the sun, which comes at the end of the chapter. But so she goes over to Rick's house and she learns a little bit more about him and um, and the section I wanted to look at um, is is really just the section where she's talking with the mother. So it's becoming it's becoming clear that Rick is not lifted, and um, whatever that means, it becomes more obvious in the next section. Um, and that most children are so basically, I'm I'm going to say this because I think it's pretty clear at this stage. It appears that lifting is some kind of like genetic modification to make children more intelligent. Um, and Rick clearly didn't have it happen. And so his mother is feeling quite urgent to make, to make him have a good life. Um, and, uh, to do this, she wants to get him into Atlas Brookings. Um, but the mother also seems to be ill in some way. I'm not exactly sure how my guess, I don't know if you have a guess. My guess is that, um, and this is partially based on later knowledge as well, but I think she might be an alcoholic or something. Cause that would explain some of the 
the sense of her being sad, there being some kind of guilt around it rather than just her being ill. Um, Because of this, Rick feels like she, whatever this thing is, Rick feels like he needs to be there to take care of her. And then she, she basically, the mother says, no, you've, you've got to convince him to go away, do this thing, you know, and she's asking Clara to tutor him so that he can do that. Um, Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and Helen says this, Helen, mother says this, you really are a sweet one. You don't say as much, but I can tell what you're thinking. A mother's love for her son, such a noble thing to override dread of loneliness. And you might not be wrong, but let me tell you, there are all kinds of other very good reasons why in a life like mine, I might prefer loneliness. I've often made such a choice in the past. I did, for instance, rather than stay with Rick's father, late father, very sadly, though Rick has no memory of him. Even so, he was for a while my husband and not an entirely useless one at that. It's thanks to him that we're able to get by um, in this way, even if we don't exactly live in splendor. Here's Rick coming back in. Oh, he's not. He wishes to stay out there and sulk further. Um, so this is, again, you kind of have this picture of someone who, uh, quite contrary to Clara's own understanding of the world, has chosen loneliness, uh, both for um, perhaps for reasons like, you know, uh, Josie's and Rick's own little separation, you know, the need to, a desire to not be seen or a desire to have control of how one is seen or for whatever reason. But there's also the sense that maybe sometimes choosing loneliness can actually be a um, can actually be a, a virtuous choice. And in some ways, I feel like Helen. I think this is one of the first moments where you see someone doing something almost p- purely out of gift, in a way. Um, you know, there's there's kind of a sense that Rick's protection of Josie might be selfish, or it might be loving, or it might be a little bit of both. Um, but this seems to me to be in some way um, mostly a generous thing of, of Helen, who's kind of this complicated character. She actually really does want him to do well, and she's willing to choose loneliness, willing to choose kind of being left alone and not having friends rather than see him suffer, um, which I think is interesting. What do you find significant about this interlude at Rick's house? Um, yeah, I think... I- I think that is, uh, you're right. It's the first part where we see someone who is, and Claire is confronted with someone who is choosing loneliness um, over something else. It's also a reversal of what Josie had said in the during the bubble game that Rick's mom wants to hold on to him and is the one holding him back. And we get some of these reversals in this part of one person says something about what's going on and then the character themselves gets the chance to explain themselves and it's the opposite actually mm-hmm. and so again you get that competing um perspectives and the failure to sort of connect and and this not understanding the whole picture which actually might tie into clara's uh, the way she visualizes the world as well not always seeing the whole picture that also these characters aren't seeing each other completely mm-hmm. um and so Rick's mother is a much more complicated character than maybe Rick or Josie uh, lead us to believe when we just hear about her mm. at first. On the other hand, there's there's a sense where both Josie's mother and Rick's mother are constantly justifying their choices mm. regarding lifting or not lifting their children, mm. and that it's important to Rick's mother that he succeed uh, in spite of her choice not to lift him. And there might be a bit of a, of a regret there mm. in that she didn't 
lift him, but now she wants to make sure that he still gets the same opportunities with the secret weapon that she has and um, whatever her own scheme is. And that she has a plan uh, in this sort of going into town at the, at the end of the part that they're all preparing to do. She has a plan to override her, this decision in a way to not lift Rick, whereas Josie's mother has a plan to override this decision to lift Josie that's had these consequences of the illness that you know we'll get in we'll get into more. But they're both, it's not, I think, entirely unselfish because mm. she wants him to move on because maybe she isn't sure if she did the right thing for him. She wants him to move on to prove that she wasn't fundamentally wrong about not lifting him. Yeah. But there's also um, a sense in which, you know, whatever the Sal was that she saw. Um, mm-hmm. I can't help but feel, I think, I think the mother, Josie's mother is a very complicated, um, com- complicated thing, but there's, there's this sense of her trying to kind of, you know, to lift your child is to kind of make them into particular kind of thing. And mm-hmm. there's a sense in which, even if I think Rick's mother is more complicated, she's not trying to make Rick something that he's not. Um, mm-hmm. and so hers is a selfishness maybe, but, um, she is more likely to choose loneliness and not control. Whereas it's kind of the distance between maybe a detached parent and an, over, and an overly attached parent. They could both be forms of selfishness. Um, but yeah. hers is a, is a, a, a more, a selfishness that would rather let him be what he is rather than try to change him. Yeah. And I don't, I wouldn't condemn either of these parents yeah. i think they're both trying uh, yeah um the other thing that started standing out to me here actually when you talked about josie's mother and um lifting and trying to make josie something she's not your question in the first part i remember when your discussion questions was why does she have clara limp mm. uh, this audition and i think it would spoil the ending too much to, to get into this question too much but i do think it's interesting that if Clara is sort of doing an audition, say, mm. uh, performing as Josie, that part of being Josie is limping. Mm. And it's it's being unhealthy, being mm. disabled in some way. And that is part of what is essentially Josie now to the mother if mm. Clara is doing an audition. And it this audition doesn't include an ideal, a physically ideal Josie, but a limping Josie. Yeah. Well, um, and even when when the mother talks about Josie in the last in the kind of weird waterfall scene, she says basically mm-hmm. she's impetuous. She always asks questions. Sal was a lot easier, but I love her for mm-hmm. it. There's the sense that her mm-hmm. flaws are also a part of who she is. Um, and there's, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Um, there's a sense. I, I also started picking up in this chapter um, that disability is a running theme uh, through all of the characters here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was trying to figure out, like, can you say that every character in this part is dealing with a disability of some kind? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you'd have to stretch it a little bit, but I do think Josie's is obvious with her illness and and Rick's mother. But with Rick, there's that term unlifted that kept mm-hmm. standing out. And so the, the un implies a lack of something, like if someone is like unable to do something versus able. Mm-hmm. Um so there's a linguistic turn that's happened in this dystopian world where even though you're adding something to the child to lift them, the, the out category is the unlifted, that they're the ones who are lacking something. Mm-hmm. And so Rick is in a you know disabled rather than abled category. He's unlifted rather than lifted. He has a subtraction, even though he's the one who hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. And so maybe in the 
the society he's in, he'd be considered developmentally disabled in a way, even though he didn't have this change. And so maybe like just in the way that disability is constructed at this time, Rick is disabled yeah. in some way. Um, the mother is, is Josie's mother is trickier because of her PTSD maybe, but then Clara as well, as we'll get into in the field, like her difficulty in navigating the field, physically getting there and, yeah. and some of her perception, her, her lack of knowledge, her limitation, she's very limited, yeah. um, in how she's able to help people and how she's able to move. Yeah. So I think that Ishiguro is exploring as well this, um, the way that disability, um, and health also mm. play into these their, their different identities and how different people see Rick and the and his mother and Josie and Clara. Mm. Yeah, I think that's such a good point. And I think it also boils down to that sense that part of being human is being limited, either in being limited in your own perspective that you have in the world or being physically limited or mentally limited. And it also plays up that sense of if you live in a world where it's possible to genetically modify things, then it does create these kind of odd stratifications of, of ability mm. and, and what is normal and what's not normal. Um, and I think that's also a good reminder of the sense that ability is to some extent kind of, we, th we think of it as something objective, but it is constructed depending on the world that you're in. You know, um, when you think about the kind of sicknesses that were pervasive in the 19th century, for instance, that we would think would be totally debilitating now, but that were kind of to some extent normal or, or a normal level of disability. Um, that is really interesting. Now, this this brings up one of my like um, ongoing, I'm not sure if it's actually an important question. How big do you think Clara is? <laughs> is this what I asked you? When it is, yeah, you asked me, and I remember the first time I read it, it just did not even register in my brain. I was like, oh, she's like normal size. But then, mm -hmm. then when I read it again, I was like, oh, this is kind of mysterious. So how big do you think she is? I think, I picture her this on this read through as a large doll. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it would be very difficult to adapt this book into a movie, uh, which I'm sure that they'll do eventually, or someone someone will probably do eventually. But because there's that idea of the uncanny valley that mm. if you look almost human, uh, it creeps people out, like CGI that looks almost human. And Clara would be so difficult to create to not make her look unsettling and to make her look like she would actually be a friend to children because she's she's clearly not quite human looking. And so I think the size comes into that. So if you picture that this almost human sized mm -hmm. doll like uh, artificial intelligence, artificial friend, mm. she'd be unsettling in a way that she's not in the book, at least to me, maybe yeah. she unsettles some of your listeners, but in a way that because you don't have to see her, um, and because like even that size thing, if she's doll size, you immediately think of like a horror movie about dolls rather than yeah. <laughs> rather than our official friend. Well, it's um, she's small to me. She seems smaller than. than yeah. Her. Well, and, and so, you know, in the last one, the teenagers say they can throw her around. And this mm -hmm. one, I actually wonder if it's less of an issue of height and more an issue of density, because mm -hmm. um, like in this one, Rick is clearly taller than her, though it's not clear how much taller than her. Because the, the grass seems to come up to like her shoulders, which would indicate that unless it's just like really tall grass, she can't be much taller than like, you know, four feet or so. Um, mm -hmm. But I also wonder if it's an issue for being kind of light. Um, 
but it is funny uh, almost universally so far the comments about clara have been very affirming like she's she does see the world in this beautiful way and she's gentle and you want to protect her um which is quite different than the feeling you might have if you see one of those videos of you know the robotics videos that come out on twitter every few months um yeah. that really are quite eerie quite creepy quite distressing um yeah but yeah but there's a sense that she but people seem to recognize um when when they're if it's an af versus a human they don't seem to be so similar that people can't recognize it yeah um, yeah there, there's a thing about clara's limitation as well i've thought about since um when the book came out there's a, a review i read of it by a, a writer named adam roberts he's also a coleridge scholar um so, and he keeps a great blog on coleridge so i knew about him from that then he wrote about clara and he his issue with the book and i disagree with him on this is that he says, on the one hand, Clara is has to be advanced enough that she can be a, a genuine friend to a teenager. And so she's in this incredibly advanced piece of technology. But on the other hand, the way he phrases it is she has to be the village idiot um, mm -hmm. because she doesn't understand how the sun works and she doesn't understand how navigating a field works and she doesn't understand all these things. And so that she is so incredibly limited in knowledge, like why doesn't she have Wikipedia downloaded into her brain is like a robot simply would, like a robot, like this is his argument. It's like, it's unbelievable that you would have this artificial intelligence that that doesn't have the intelligence of, of a computer. And I disagree with him. And I can see you're, you're shaking your head. You're, you're, you already know. Um, because I think, like you said at the beginning, she is designed to keep teacher, teenagers from feeling lonely. She's not designed to be a tutor yeah. or an iPad. She's designed to be a friend. And I think what Ishiguro is doing is saying something that's essential to friendship is that she doesn't have all of this knowledge to put her ahead. There's there's a power balance that would or an imbalance that would happen if she had all the knowledge of Wikipedia at the tips of her fingers. Like Janet in The Good Place. Yeah, like Janet in The Good Place um, or Data in Star Trek and all these other artificial like life forms that you get in in media and that for Clara to be an empathetic friend, she can't know about very much about the world. Hmm. Um, she can't know about the physics of the sun. She can't know how to navigate a field, what a bull is, that she has to be, in order to be as empathetic as she is in a way that she can't have all this sort of additional, like just facts. Her field yeah. can't be, her head isn't filled with all these sort of computational facts. Well, I think also, um, <laughs> I, I guess part of me thinks, well, if you just fill the uh, robot, if you fill the robot's consciousness with the contents of the internet, I hardly imagine that, that it, would, it would become very friendly. It's a very common plot line in, um, from Marvel movies to uh, just Terminator. That's the whole plot of Terminator is the robots take over because they realize that humanity needs to be wiped out because they get access to the internet i think <laughs> same with them well no, yeah it's, so it's going, yeah. it seems like she's specifically kind of prevented from having certain knowledge like she calls bones oblongs you know and one would assume that that's not like just like a, a blip on the part of the programmers but that they in fact actually don't want her to know or really be interested in and clara never really seems interested in what they're looking on their oblongs do you know what i mean and that's necessary for her doing the job that she does yeah and i think it's the same because 
I think it's this line of it's supposed to be comedy throughout um, the sphere of millennia around hanky panky that mm-hmm. uh, and Josie and Rick do this as well reassuring Clara we're not going to have sex you can leave us alone like nothing's going to happen if, if you leave and she she doesn't react like that's the main thing it's not that she says like what is sex or it's not that she is awkward about it or she, she just doesn't respond and it's clear that she hears it and so we get it in the narration but she doesn't have any concept of what they mean when they say hanky panky or we're not going to fool around and she has no curiosity about it either mm-hmm. it's sort of like sal appearing in in the grass that she she just isn't going to pursue that line of questioning she's more curious about the sun and how it works and rick and josie can be doing whatever and mm-hmm. that's not part of her program she is it it feels like an intentional blind spot in order to be a friend of the teenager she just can't even like acknowledge it just washes over her like water off of a duck if someone brings that up well and Um, it's also because her job is to support and prevent loneliness not to morally instruct her like her her mission is very simple and so her understanding of the world is very simple um i also think it's really funny to me the reactions people have to her relationship with the sun Mm. um because (laughs) there's a lot of the reviewers there's kind of this like what an idiot doesn't she know the sun is just the sun um, mm-hmm. but I think there's this sense that, um, she is so fundamentally relational that her mm-hmm. whole understanding of reality is that there would be relationships, personhood, person, you know, person re- relating to one another. Uh, it reminds me a lot of like in, um, Saving the Appearances by Barfield, which really draws on like Levy Rule's idea of quote unquote primitive consciousness, but this kind mm-hmm. of sense of there being, inherent relationships and meaning between all things. And I don't think that's a, a sign of her lack of intelligence. I think it's it's a part of her whole, her, her kind of super intelligence of relating and knowing how to relate. And it's funny actually, even when you think about the fact that she like, um, like when in the bubble scene you read us, um, she, she laughs, uh, which is a funny thing to think of a robot doing, but that's because her whole kind of self is bent on, on preventing loneliness and, and, and being relationally intelligent um go ahead um and we get hints that there are more advanced afs coming out as well or we're told that there are there's one that can smell and that there probably are ones that are are more factually intelligent than clara who will understand how the sun works like that they'll there's been experimentation likely on how much knowledge to give afs to hit the, the perfect friendship mixture and that clara is in this ideal middle space of having just enough that um she can truly be a companion to a child like Josie while being limited so that she sees the world in this magical way and and that actually also makes her a good companion for Josie that if she just had a little bit more knowledge a little bit more access to reality let's say scientific reality that that she would actually lose something in that yeah um so yeah, I'm I like Adam Roberts as a Coleridge scholar. I disagree with him in calling uh Clara the village idiot. I think that Yeah. No, she's very, very intelligent at one thing. Uh, which is the kind of thing you would want to do with machine. If I were a smart coder, what I would want. <laughs> yeah. Um so I guess that leads us uh really to the kind of the final act before the coda, um, which is is her determination to go and and see the sun and his temple basically um, in mm-hmm. 
beautiful. Mr. McBain's barn. Yeah. Do you want to read us a little excerpt? Sure. So this is when she is now trying to get to the barn before it gets too dark before or before the sun sets and is no it goes to sleep. My fear of not reaching Mr. McBain's barn in time caused me to give only a brief glance at Rick's house as I passed it, and then I was further along the informal trail, beyond any point I'd been. I went through another picture frame gate, and the grass became too tall to see the barn anymore. The field became partitioned into boxes, some larger than others, and I pressed on, conscious of the contrasting atmospheres between one box and another. One moment the grass would be soft and yielding, the ground easy to tread. Then I'd cross a boundary and everything would dark, darken. The grass would resist my pushes and there would be strange noises around me, making me fearful that I'd made a serious miscalculation, that there was no justifiable reason to disturb his privacy in the manner I was hoping to do, that my efforts would have gravely negative consequences for Josie. While crossing one particularly unkind box, I heard around me the cries of an animal in pain and a picture came into my mind of Rosa sitting on the rough ground somewhere outdoors, little pieces of metal scattered around her as she reached out both hands to grasp one of her legs stretched out stiffly before her. The image was in my mind for only a second, but the animal carried on making its noise and I felt the ground collapsing beneath me. I remembered the terrible bull on the walk up to Morgan's Falls and how in all probability it had emerged from beneath the ground. And for a brief moment, I even thought the sun wasn't kind at all. And this was the true reason for Josie's worsening condition. Even in this confusion, I was convinced that if I could only pull myself through into a kinder box, I'd become safe. I'd also been aware of a voice calling to me and I now spotted an object shaped like one of those overhaul men's traffic cones placed in the grass a little ahead of me. The voice was coming from behind this cone. And when I tried to move towards it, I realized it was in fact two cones, one inserted into the other, allowing the higher one to perform a rocking motion, perhaps to draw the attention of passersby. Clara, come on over here. I came closer then realized these weren't cones at all, but Rick holding back the grass with one hand and reaching the other towards me. Now that I'd recognized him, I had even more incentive to move towards him, but my feet sank further, and I knew if I attempted another step, I'd lose balance and fall deep into the ground. I knew, too, that despite Rick appearing to be within a touching distance, he was not in reality so near because of the fierce border separating our boxes. Even so, he continued to reach out towards me, and where his arm crossed into my box, it appeared elongated and bent. Clara, come on. But I'd accepted now that I would soon fall into the ground, that the sun was angry with me and perhaps unkind, and that Josie was disappointed with me. I began to lose orientation, even as Rick's arm grew longer and more crooked till it touched me. It stopped me falling, and my feet steadied a little. Mm. And then Rick rescues her into a kind box. <laughs> and Clara's dark night of the soul has been uh, successfully passed through. Mm. What do you find interesting about this section? Uh, part of it is difficult for me. I, I did have trouble with the um, both read throughs of picturing the way that she sees these boxes, the way that she divides the field is, is hard for me to, to imagine that. Um, so there's some of it is just the challenge of it, trying to like think of what she actually doing and how she perceiving and that these boxes create barriers. Mm. Um, but it's this, it is this hopelessness she feels that as she's in an, inhospitable part of the field and gets lost 
she hears, she starts hearing an animal in distress that she wouldn't have heard before. So her perception changes. I don't think she's hallucinating that. I think she's just suddenly hearing something she wouldn't have heard otherwise. Mm-hmm. And she starts doubting the sun and she feels Josie's disappointment and this cause and effect. And it, it is just truly like suddenly this deep despair she feels. Mm-hmm. Um, and Rick sort of hilariously afterwards says she looks like a fly kind of batting against a window from her mm-hmm. room of his house. So for Rick's perspective, she probably looked quite funny, just sort of like, like struggling through this little ditch or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas for Clara, it was just, um, a matter of life or death like spiritual life or death I think it's also interesting that um as she begins to lose as she feels like she's losing relational stability with Josie and with the son you know when she feels like she's losing her relationships her important relationships her capacity to see begins to kind of fragment and break apart mm-hmm. um so, which kind of makes sense, right? If her whole self is bent on on preventing loneliness, then when she experiences it herself, her her capacity to perceive the world literally breaks down. Which I think is an interesting little kind of metaphor for us. You know, do we lose when we begin to feel alone or threatened? Do we kind of lose the capacity to see things clearly? Um, and it's through you know Rick quite literally reaching out to her that she sees, that she begins to see things clearly again. Um, and, and I think that's that's a kind of beautiful little image. So what do you make of the whole scene, the actual kind of this, it's really like a spiritual experience that she has with the sun. Mm. Um, it reminds me of, it reminds me kind of of some Greek myths, you know, the waiting for the, the God to appear and, um, and then and then making making this promise, you know, appealing, pleading and making this promise about what do you make of this whole experience that she has oh man I don't I don't know I think the hardest part for me is that an experience where she's responding by suddenly getting different voices and memories that are in response to her thoughts so so it's that first hint of like, is there something actually happening to her, like existentially, spiritually, externally, that's triggering the the ball and the Kooting's machine and the um and these various visions she's having, or is she doing this to herself? Which I suppose is the question people ask about faith: is when you have a transcendent experience, is that your brain runs in a certain way, or something leaking into you, or or battering into you? Mm. Um, and so man, Ishiguro is so ambiguous about what's going on with Clara. And, and it's unsettling, I think, that she goes out there and she's had such faith in the sun and its goodness. And it, it, it is quite angry at her or at she first. Um, yeah. Or she thinks it is, yeah. Um, she's terrified of this. So you're right, it's, it's like this deity, this, this older style of deity, a sun god, mm-hmm. <laughs> really. Um, who who may be quite actually dangerous to Clara for encroaching on his territory. Yeah. Um, what do I make of it? I don't know. It, it's, it's a hard one to, to think. And I, I think that's the fun of it, of reading it, is that it's unexpected. Mm. Um, you definitely don't think when she's going into it, you think maybe it'll either be silent or, <laughs> it'll, or it'll be benevolent, but you don't think it's going to be this... Hair- 
rather dangerous thing. Yeah. yeah. Now, I mean, the thing is, um, yeah, a lot of it does seem to be kind of, you do wonder how much of this is her own perception, how much of it is what's really happening. Um, but it does, it also reminds me of kind of temple scenes in the Hebrew Bible. You know, there's this sense of smoke and, you know, fire and terror. One of the things that struck me about it is that prior to this moment, her relationship to the sun is, is the sense of the sun being benevolent and gracious, by which I don't just mean, you know, that it's nice, but that there's this sense of it kind of bestowing a kind of prevenient grace, something that upholds, that that makes life possible, and, and that he shows these moments of grace to, um, to people who don't ask for it, but who need it. Um, and then suddenly in this scene, you have this kind of sense of, you call it, you know, the barn and the bargain. Um, she, she drives a hard mm-hmm. bargain with the sun and she makes this promise that she promises to fulfill. And she thinks that if she does this, that the sun will, you know, do this. And it becomes, you know, to put it in theological terms, it switches from this relationship of, of pure grace or of, of kind of givenness from the sun to an almost more kind of works oriented. Well, if I do this, then you will do that. Um, mm-hmm. so she, she almost has kind of a, if you, if you want to call it kind of a theological transformation, you know, she goes from this sense of the sun just does things because the sun is good to, I need to bargain with the sun. I need to do something for the sun to be willing to do something good for me. Um, mm-hmm. but that also has come along with her encountering, uh, her, her relationship with the sun is happening alongside this kind of complication and and complexification of her relationship with other humans too. Um, So yeah, it is, it is an interesting question of, is she perceiving the sun rightly? Is she experiencing something outside of herself or is, is she really kind of experiencing a theophany? You know what I mean? Is she really seeing the sun as it is? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Because it's, it's confounding her expectations, what she set up. And so that there's that correction of, like you say, she thinks the sun is one thing and suddenly she's getting this new, very different encounter with, with this previously benevolent deity. And, and, and it is a little bit like, you know, remove your sandals. You're on holy ground right now. Um, don't touch my ark. Um, yeah. Like there, there's elements of that as well. I don't play into like the whole like Old Testament God is angry and New Testament God is, is grace. I don't, I'm not playing into that dichotomy but there is a little bit of that like you tread carefully when you go up on that mountain like god loves you and created you but you don't do this lightly and he could smite you (laughs) could smite you yeah yeah um so that she is on holy ground and and what she expresses is privacy which um her concept of privacy we we don't have time to get into that as well but there's something i think always a little bit funny about how she's so concerned about preserving privacy Mm -hmm. um and the son's privacy she's encroaching on the son's privacy at his bedtime as Mm -hmm. she is going to the barn and that this could offend him Mm. i also just love that this scene is told what's what we're really seeing through her eyes is a sunset you know we're just we're just at yeah. encountering a beautiful sunset but in this beautiful <laughs> yeah. sunset we're encountering a bar of orange light which yeah. is yeah oh, but we experience it as this kind of dramatic terrible and the truth you know full of terror um and sublimity um divine encounter and it's also interesting how her kind of limited perspective of the world that we've been talking about 
you know, her experience with the bowl, her her hatred of the of the Kooting's machine, which is just this very particular thing, right? Like it's um, yeah something particular her experience that these things take on these kind of cosmic um, cosmic values, cosmic meanings, you know. Yeah, and I think in in the book, um, even the name like Kooting's machine, it's <laughs> it's a funny name. Like there's yeah. something that just feels like Ishiguro is testing you a little bit where he gives like these slightly silly labels to things that are matters of life and death to Clara mm -hmm. and is daring us to not take her seriously mm -hmm. all throughout. So I must destroy the Cootings machine to mm -hmm. heal Josie and I must not encroach upon the privacy of the sun. And it's, and, and you occasionally get these outside perspectives like Rick's Rick seeing her do these things. And it's just so like, mundane and maybe a little comical and for clara it's it's sacred it's sublime you said in that um and yeah and that are we going to buy this are we going to suspend our disbelief to go along with clara or are we going to abandon her and her quest to save josie it is it is interesting because rick kind of doesn't know what's happening but he does seem to generally take her seriously in the same way that Josie kind of generally takes her seriously and lets her watch the sunset. Um, so that's mm -hmm. also an interesting element is, are they just humoring her or is there some sense of her having some wisdom or capability that they don't know about? Um, yeah. Yeah, and Rick is the consistent character other than Clara. He Rick is the one that all three scenes revolve, well, the barn maybe doesn't revolve around him, mm -hmm. but he is the helper. Um, mm -hmm. So there's a sense in part three where Rick is the main human character in these parts and not Josie and mm. other ones like Rick is the one who keeps showing up. And so I've thought about like his role in the story and both with Josie, but his relationship with, with Clara and being a helper, yeah. not understanding helper to her and saving her like the way his arm does, isn't going to break through the box that mm. Clara is in. And then it does, it bends around and, um, and breaks through this barrier and he, lifts her up and carries her um and that he is a friend to her in that way as yeah. well i was about to say that he is a friend to clara and the same way that clara is a friend to josie yeah and and you know in the in the previous chapter he kind of defends her from the from the rambunctious teenagers and mm. yeah it's interesting and it's interesting that rick who in some ways represents this kind of he's not a luddite but you know he's not lifted um, they're kind of he's kind of preserved from this weird dystopian technological society, and yet mm -hmm. he's the one who treats her with this kind of humanity, which is yeah. very interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, what do you make of this final passage when um, when Josie experiences this sudden kind of impulse of a fear of death? Yeah, and and says and rejects Clara. Says, "I need my mom. I don't. Yeah. Clara can't." be her friend in that yeah. moment yeah uh, it's a little bit like as the ending of the part it's it's reminding us of stakes so it's doing a little bit of a, a story plot thing but it's also just giving us there's because there's that artificiality a little bit in some of these interactions the way people talk to each other people criticize Ishiguro's ear for dialogue that it's a little bit stiff and formal sometimes especially the way the teenagers speak to each other um and and I think you could say, well, that's because this is Clara's memory. Um, it's just the way he writes it, whatever. But this is a moment where that breaks down in a way. And we just see, you know, a child who's afraid of dying mm -hmm. um, without the artifice of, of 
the bubble game and the um and Clara and and her making this deal with the sun, you just sort of see this moment that we would call like a very human moment mm-hmm. at the end. Um which which he doesn't always do. He doesn't just go for that sort of raw emotional, like no artifice in front of it sort of moment. So yeah, um, and and that in this moment Clara can't do her job. She can't prevent mm-hmm. her from loneliness or fear. Maybe that's the thing she can't prevent her from fear. Um yeah, and I wonder what her understanding of death is if she doesn't, if she just um, ignores sex and she ignores um, Sal in a way and ignores these other things that Josie's dealing with to, to be a friend if if death is also something that is just not quite, that that just isn't comprehensible that she doesn't pursue a curiosity about death. Yeah, that's an interesting question. And that reminds me of something else that I keep on meaning to say in these episodes. It's interesting how death is talked about in this book, because whenever anybody talks about Sal, they say things like, um, I, I'm I'm not quoting this correctly, but this happens in this chapter, then it happens in the next one, or in the, in the previous chapter as well. Um, basically, like she was forced to pass away, or should it come to a moment that Josie should have to pass away? But there's this, there's almost this sense of it being like a thing that you do, you know, that death is not something that happens to you. Um, it's something that you, you do, um, yeah. which is a really interesting, odd linguistic choice. And I wonder if that's partially because we're hearing it through Clara's perspective, her own memories of what this thing called death is, that it's something someone does kind of unwillingly, um, but it is something that they do, it's something they choose. Yeah, or if because you just get these hints of this world, like how dystopian it is, how technological it mm-hmm. is, and perhaps there are ways of artificially keeping someone on life support until someone makes the choice to take them off of it. Very close to what we can do now, but even like slightly beyond that. So maybe there's a a choice to finally let a person die. Yeah. Um, but it's not the, it's not talked about kind of as a natural thing, natural part of life. No. no, it's not. And yeah, that question around preserving a self that you love, of course, mm-hmm. is going to lead into the next parts of this book. Yes. And and there we shall have to pause. Um, mm-hmm. What would you, as we draw to a close, what would you tell people to keep their eyes out for in the next few chapters? Yeah, I think that question of how much, yeah, that, that nature of the self, who um, who Josie is essentially, can that be preserved? And who Clara is essentially, does she actually have a self and a soul? Um, that's going to come up quite a bit in a um, bit of a classic sci-fi sort of way as it, as it goes on. Mm. Um, and the other one was the, yeah, the constant turns towards the good. I'm glad you reminded me of that because um, I'd forgotten I said that to you about Ishiguro where you're just waiting like a M. Night Sh- Shyamalan movie I said his name wrong but um, where you're sometimes you're just waiting for the twist and then mm-hmm. Ishiguro you're waiting for the gut punch yeah um, Clara, you keep waiting like you get these hints that something sinister is going to happen with the portrait with the, the sighting of Sal and you just keep waiting for it to all fall apart or become just gut-wrenchingly sad and to keep an eye out for those moments where you feel like it might go that way. And then the way that instead of turning towards that, 
there might be to turn towards kindness and goodness. And I love stories that do that. I think it's so rare and so hard where a story makes a choice to be kind. And Clara is always saying that things are kind or unkind. So I think he's, the author is very aware of this, but the choice to turn towards characters being kind to one another or even not characters, maybe the, the story itself, to be kind instead of um, devastating is, is is unusual, I think, and something to look forward to. It reminds me of an interview um, that I think came out right before Susanna Clark released Piranesia, and I think it was in The New Yorker, where she talked about how she wanted to write an anti-horror novel. Because mm-hmm. she said that you know, a horror novel is, at its core, it's a, it's a novel where there's a deep, dark, terrifying secret um, that you're always kind of waiting for it to be unveiled. And she said, I want to write something where the, where the secret is, is a good secret. It's something beautiful. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that Ishiguro has this tendency, like you said, to have that you're waiting for the gut punch, that you're waiting for the discovery of the deep disappointment. Um, But I think there is this sense so far in the story, and we shall see when it, when it finishes of what if, in this story, maybe, and I don't want to say too much, but could it be possible that um, what we discover is not a gut punch? And what would that mean? And and how would that even be possible in this story that is quite tangled and sad? And what would a good ending be for Josie and even for Claire? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for joining me, James. This has been really lovely. Thanks, Joy. I'm always happy to talk about books with you. This is very yeah. fun. Yes, I know. And it's fun that this time we recorded it. So. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, everyone, I hope that you enjoy this episode and make sure to join in on the discussion. I'll put, I'll post discussion questions that you can engage with on um, Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. And of course on Patreon. All right. Thank you, James. Hope you have a lovely day and everyone else as well. Thank you too.